Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to start by acknowledging these fine conventions. SoonerCon, Central Oklahoma's longest-running pop culture convention, is back. SoonerCon 31 is scheduled for June 30th through July 2nd, 2023, in Norman, Oklahoma. It promises a weekend full of tabletop gaming, cosplay, and appreciation for literary sci-fi as well as TV and comics. Visit SoonerCon.com for more information. The Hellmouth Convention The Hellmouth Convention is designed by fans for fans, with the aim of harnessing the power of fandom to raise money for charities. The Hellmouth Convention celebrates all fandoms, but particularly things like Buffy, Firefly, and Dr. Horrible. Like the Hellmouth itself, things gravitate toward it that you may not find anywhere else. The next event is scheduled for June 9th through 11th, 2023, in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today I have two reasons to be very excited today. One, I'm welcoming back Dan Decker, and Dan and I have a long history of conversations relating to the power of fandom. All of these conversations will be linked to on my website, AaronBossig.com, under the show notes. But more importantly, we're starting something really amazing with the Sci-Fi Coffee Company, a sci-fi writing contest that will give new budding writers the chance to spread their voices into sci-fi fandom and possibly put a little money in their pocket. And maybe some coffee, too. We'll talk about both a little bit later, but let's start right now with Dan Decker. On tap today, we have my buddy Dan Decker back. How you doing, sir? Hey, Aaron. Thanks for having me back on uh, the Hungry Trilobite. Uh, it is always a pleasure to get to talk to you, let alone be a guest on your show. So thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to come back and, and chat. Well, I love it, man, because you always have these a great, you have a great perspective on what's going on in the fandom at this point in time. And I like when we talk somehow, it always comes back to the culture and the internet connectivity of fandom. We're always usually less about specifics and more just about, you know, what's going on in the geeks heads right now. Exactly. Exactly. And I appreciate that. I, it's, I think you and I are both um, tuned, not tuned in, but, but have found a tune in moment when it comes to our appreciation for the culture around nerddom, let's say, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, as folks of a certain age have grown through various stages of maintaining our community, right? Um, You and I, you know, we did not have the vast connectivity that the internet, we had the internet, but it wasn't the same internet, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We were the nascent uh, communities on uh, message boards and newsletters and and just in person at school where you had your guarded cloister of people you could trust to know you were a Trek fan or how much you were into Star Wars um, because you didn't want everybody to know that you knew how a lightsaber worked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that could be dangerous. Uh, but I think, you know, those of us who had a harder time finding a tribe when we were younger um, have an appreciation for what the world allows for when it comes to that that closeness now. Indeed. And it, it was interesting. I, I was on a panel with Larry Nemeshik at SoonerCon two weeks ago. Um, I yeah. Believe he, yeah, man. 
And, and somebody had brought up the, the question, when did nerddom become a thing? When did it become this force in the world? And a, the prevailing wisdom was that it kind of happened with Star Wars and that that led to modern fan conventions and fanzines and that there's definitely something to that. That's definitely, I think, when the seed was planted. But when it comes to the mega force it is now, when it comes to what we're seeing with social media and with, you know, multi-billion dollar franchises, I said that that moment happened, in my estimation, with the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that that is a and, and I'll 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 I want to take off of on a point about that. When did nerddom start? Mm-hmm. You know, we we really wouldn't be able to put a button on that because talk about someone who lit a fuse that had a slow burn. You go all the way back to Mary Shelley. Yes. Let's just take a moment and acknowledge the fact that science fiction as a genre was started by like a 19 year old bored girl woman on her weekend away with her boyfriend because he was being a dick Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we have science fiction now um you know and 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 it just that that she lit that fuse and then you get the Jules Verne you get the H.G. Wells you get into the early 1900s you have Einstein coming along with scientific ideas that literally inspire imagination right and 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 there is no there is no disconnecting the intrinsic uh, the intrinsicality of science in science fiction, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and we just see that continue to pay dividends. How many astronauts, how many engineers, how many folks who are doing these works these days said Star Trek, Star Wars, uh, Jules Verne, these were the inspirations that got me to wonder, to get me to want to learn, to want me, to make me want to find these answers. And then it, you know, just recently, last couple, last week or so, Doug Drexler lost his wife to cancer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I only saw this through my Kakuta speed on Twitter, but there was a fan on the International Space Station because now there are Star Trek fans who are doing Star Trek stuff. And they took the time to put, you know, the last picture of Doug and his wife on that monitor in the, in the observation window and take a picture of them with the Earth behind them. You know, and that that's what this community, that's what growing these these things can do is just make those human connections in ways that we never could have we never mm-hmm. could have imagined that, you know. And you know, I've I've brought this the Mary Shelley point up to people who are just really about how over diversified science fiction is now and they're getting away. From, it's like, but you realize the whole genre was started by a, a teenage girl and she didn't do it for any reason other than she wanted to prove she could. She did it on a dare. Yeah, basically. Yeah. And science fiction <laughs> since then has been an, an exercise in, can we do this? Can we figure it out? We dare ourselves to do these things over and over again. It's only fiction till it's not. Right. Um, you know, and there's some things, I, you know, I, I am remiss to even say there are some problems in, well, quote unquote problems, ideas in star uh, or in science fiction that we won't ever achieve but we actually live in a world where you know not in the same uh technical way but we have people who have built actual lightsabers with plasma blades that can cut through stuff pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um now are they powered by kyber crystals and high power energy cells no that you need a backpack and some gas and a few other things but the point is you can't say we'll never use transporters because, hey, now we actually have a kind of lightsaber, you know, 
there are discoveries out there to be made yet that will allow for the fiction in our science to become science. And I love, I mean, it's fun to look at the technology and play with it because obviously we can just go down the list of things that have come true in particular from Star Trek, but I mean, plenty of other places you just mentioned. Oh yeah, no, we, yeah, no, we want people to listen to this podcast. They've heard all that before. Yeah, <laughs> but to me, I love looking at the non-technical aspects of science fiction and just saying, okay, we saw that and we said, we want that. And, and we, we, without having to build something, without having to make a gadget, we decided to get a little bit closer. Mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. when we look at, at the, the society in Star Trek that has no scarcity, and we say, well, how do we do that? And that's that's an economics problem. That's a resource problem. That's not necessarily a gadget problem. It's a policy problem. It's We start thinking, can we get closer to that? When yeah. we look at Star Wars and we say, you know, what happens when somebody is stuck in the middle of nowhere and feels like they have no hope and suddenly they're told they're the most important person in the galaxy? What does that mean? Those are the questions I love to talk about. Right. Right. Well, and, you know, you contrast, like you said, the, the, the background of, of a society, um, you know, post-scarcity society is what leads to, you know, the, the, the idea being that no one having to want or need allows us to then become free to, to think and do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, would by its nature accelerate uh, human um, uh, understanding uh, when less people have to uh, suffer to live, they can, you know, live to learn. And, um, but you have a galaxy somewhere like, like the Star Wars galaxy, where I always have the sense of this is, this, this stuff has been in their world so long. It's, it's like the wheel to us. It's like mm-hmm. who, who started the first fire? I, I, yeah, I don't know who invented hyperdrive, but it works. And now we have hyperdrive everywhere, right? That's just their lived in a, a world. And like you said, it's the backdrop to, the adventure or the hero journey or the, uh, the the learning that you are the most important person right now and we really need your help. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's one of the things that I've always told people about, um, you know, Battlestar Galactica 2004, I think is probably one of the more digestible, um, you know, science fiction uh, franchises uh, or shows to get into because the science fiction of it is literally just the setting. They don't. They don't focus on the the hows or whys. How does the FTL jump? Very well, thank you. You know, it works very well um, when we need it to. <laughs> That's how it works. Uh, and so it's more about the human story in there. And what do you do? Who are you when you're the last of not even the best of humanity? Right. You know, it was a random sixty thousand people who survived. They didn't even get to pick the best ones. Mm-hmm. Um, quote unquote, to their society. And so who are you when you're reduced to the absolute minimum, right? Who do you, who will you come back to be? We all have to take into account that we might end up dealing with the telephone sanitizers of the universe. Right, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but, you know, it's always been about the, well, for, for me anyway, it's always been about the, the story of the, of the, uh, the, the protagonist, the hero, the adversary, the um, and much less the the gadgets are the draw. That's what gets your attention, you know. Uh, oh, hey, ray guns and laser swords are cool. Oh, wait, there's actually something, you know. Uh oh, I accidentally learned morals along the way, <laughs> you know. Um, and for kids especially, that's that's a great hook because you 
you know, you go back and you watch something like, let's say the Goonies as an adult mm-hmm. and, oh, wow. You know, as, as, especially as a, a, a parenting adult, um, you're like, wow, that's rated PG. Whoo. Wow. PG was a whole other thing back then. It was But as a kid, all the stuff that shocked me as an adult going like, wow, I can't believe I was, you know, I didn't, obviously it didn't affect me in a way that why, why, why should my parents have cared? Because that's not what I was there to see. That's literally the jokes that are there for the parents. Right. Um, and they still do that. And they're just a lot more subtle about it these days. And maybe in a way that's actually a little more, <laughs> a little more forthcoming in it's, in it's messaging in it's subtlety. Right. Um, but you know, it's always about the storytelling and how we discover to be better selves. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, I have one story that's told very, very well, a classic upon classics, the original Ghostbusters movie. You know, you watch that as a kid, or at least I did, and it's like, oh, the Ghostbusters, they're, they're, they got the big gadgets and they, they, they fight the ghosts and that's fun. And you get this into this idea of, you know, these guys just doing this really cool stuff. And you come back as an adult and you realize this is a movie about paying bills and running a business and it's still cool but holy you're suddenly on the other side of that fence yep and there's i mean that's that is and like you said that's good storytelling that is with either by i I would hope by design but either by design or by accident when you tell a good story there's parts for everyone either Mm -hmm. you intentionally you know quote unquote cater to the kids uh to get butts and seats as they say Mm -hmm. um or you know you cater to the adults uh, and it's and it's this slow plotting thing, but if you just tell a good story, people will take from it what they need to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and in this modern age where we can be prejudiced against the things that we love before we even know anything, right? Um, are you caught up on Strange New Worlds? I confess, I am yet? not. That, that I actually have it on a schedule to do that. But gotcha. that schedule is not this week. Well, this did you see the news that broke regarding a particular character of Vimport back in the production? I don't they captured, believe they captured pictures of an actor playing a character. He has a uh, yes. who's on the show. Yes, I know what you're discussing. Yes. Okay. Um, my take then was why don't we wait and see the story that they that they plan to tell before we get upset about are they breaking canon yes um and that is my take on just about everything now i am willing to wait to see the story before and and and, you know i don't i i immediately discount or write off these criticisms before any of us have even had a chance to see what it is Mm -hmm. um and very little, uh, I put very little, uh, you know, energy into finding out people who have seen it already and what their thoughts are until after I've seen it myself. Um, but this will be a very good point of, hey, why don't we just wait and let them tell the story you before know, we get upset? I'm sitting here listening to you and I'm just, it's clicking in my head that really every Star Trek or the vast majority of Star Trek since Voyager has been a prequel in one way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's been exceptions, but that's kind of been the trend. And that's been the argument almost every time I've heard it is that, well, they're going to break canon. And the times that they've actually done that compared to the amount of bitching and moaning that's happened is mm-hmm. almost none. It is. It is. And, you know, uh, to take it or leave it with prequels, 
there's room to tell stories. You know, mm-hmm. the prequel that I want, where's my Enterprise C, y'all? Come yeah. on. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> if you're listening to the fans, Mr. Paramount Plus, you, you, you heard us when we said, give us a Pike show. And holy cow, if it didn't turn out to be just a Pike show, mm-hmm. that show is incredible. Uh, I recommend to all fans to watch Strange New Worlds if you're able. Um, but, 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 we there's there's stories to be told in that era there's ships to be seen there are things we as fans would like to know and again outside of our you know favorite five people in the whole entire galaxy there are other crews and stories to be told out there and to your point we have essentially the only the only things operating post tng timeline right now are the two cartoons mm-hmm um you know uh, lower decks and prodigy both uh, seem to be well lower decks for sure is past tng and prodigy seems to be somewhere in that after fact you know it's not right. quite sh- i'm not quite sure it's in that 20th 20 years worth of room and then we have what started as a prequel become the most far advanced storytelling vehicle that star trek has now <laughs> mm-hmm. uh in discovery um but but prequels are not the limitation that everyone says they are there are good ways to do it and bad ways to do it i think now we do have a really great contrast um no no shade at the prequels the star wars prequels Mm -hmm. uh as i have aged and they have aged i have found appreciation for them and if you take them into the context of the greater story there's really some good stuff going on there indeed Uh, i I don't hate on them just to hate them exactly right don't hate them just to hate them uh there's there's things to there's things to critique that's for sure uh but contrast to something like strange new worlds where um it's a really well done prequel story Mm -hmm. right because it's not trying to be a prequel it's just telling stories in the same time right that you know lucas had a whole different other job to do then um but but those are those are i think two polar opposites of, of how that storytelling can work yeah and, and your earlier point about telling stories for different audiences and getting butts in seats. The first thing that came to mind was Star Wars Episode One, And I, again, I'm not going to rag on it just to rag on it. But it taught me a storytelling lesson that I don't think could have been taught any other way. And that is the difference between Episode One and Episode Four. Episode One, they made it a very kid-centric story in an effort to bring kids into the theater. Right. They had kid characters, kid actors, kid focused. And afterward, I realized that didn't need to be because there was never a time when kids didn't like Star Wars. You didn't need right. to make the extra effort. So right. you, you can like young Anakin, you can dislike him. That's that's a different conversation. But to think that we needed to do that, to, and just say that we, the idea that we had to make Star Wars accessible to kids was just the most unnecessary complication to the storytelling that I just don't understand why they ever had to go that route. But I wouldn't have figured that out had I not seen it go sideways. Right, right. We we didn't know, we we weren't aware of what we would be missing because we didn't know what we had until we got what we got, um, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But your point being that it wasn't, obviously it isn't that there's kids in episode four, that's not what enraptured me as a child that's not what got your attention right it's not why my younger brother who was born in 1986 i was his introduction to star wars not the prequels right um and that was that's back when there were just the original the original trilogy was complete and untouched Mm -hmm. it was you know 
it was what we got when we got it for the most part. Um, and so Star Wars was going to be, we were going to go see these movies anyway, right? right? You did not have, and we, those of us who, uh, those folks out there who had kids or, or nieces, nephews, et cetera, were going to take them to see it anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, as a child, even as a youngster, was very tuned into the, oh, that character's supposed to be for me. Oh, that slapstick is supposed to be funny to me. Oh, that funny voice is supposed to be funny to me. It never was, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I could, you know, five, six, seven years old, don't pander to me. Right. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not here to be pandered to. I'm here to be entertained just like everybody else in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, kids don't get the credit they deserve for being smart. No. <laughs> we at, we got into the state. We don't want to challenge kids. We don't want to scare kids. We don't want to give them something that maybe is a little too grown up for them. It's a little too violent for them. We, we feel like, man, if this sinks into their head, that's going to just ruin them. And while I don't want to rush it, those experiences, they're going to happen at some point. Right. And, you know, of all the things that traumatized me as a child, um, going to see any particular movie or seeing any particular bit of media really wasn't it. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not traumatized by any of the, uh, you know, actual movies or shows or any of that stuff that I watched as a kid. Never, it's, that's not what has sat with me long-term. It's what actual real people did to me in the real world that have sat with me this entire life of mine. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, uh, and I, I, I don't think, well, you know, Aaron, um, that kind of opens up a door there where that's just our parents projecting their failure onto something else, you know? Yeah. Or their, I won't say failure. Let's say their, um, their, uh, uh, their unresolved uh, needs as parents. They mm-hmm. fall, they fall onto, well, it must have been, you know, it must have been the movie or the video game I let them watch. It definitely couldn't have been my failure. uh to you know protect or look after them but but it's never been the things that i saw you know the things that i saw taught me lessons Mm -hmm. you know trek star wars gi joe transformers all those cartoons that they um all those cartoons that were just 30 minute commercials where they oops and uh accidentally taught us you know that sentient uh that uh uh, freedom is the right of all sentient beings and knowing is half the battle (laughs) way to come guys yeah, and I definitely believe that you do pull things from these, even if it's not necessarily intended by the the, the showmakers, the showrunners, the writers. You see things in those shows that you do want to incorporate into your life. Like I say, as a kid, one of the best things about watching the Ghostbusters cartoon show is that these are four guys who like hanging out together and they get to do cool stuff. That becomes an idea for friendship and yep. possibly the life of a child who doesn't have a great idea for friendship. Who doesn't have right. a model for how to have that? Right, and that, and too, again, teaches us to seek um, seek a community of folks who have have some common interest. And you know, while it's just like any relationship, it's a common interest that tends to spark the uh, connection, and then either you know that fosters a, a broader connection through other things, and and you become friends or or whatever else uh, because you make so many strong connections or maybe that's the one thing that you have in common and you see each other every so often at a convention and you still enjoy each other for that one commonality because 
um, you know, being humans, uh, that is, that's, that's what we are seeking is that connection. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think like you were saying, you watch shows like the Ghostbusters, the real Ghostbusters cartoon, um, and all these other things, it's easy to, you know, forget, uh, because they're faceless that the, the people who made those shows while they were, they were putting them out there as fast as they could. They were making as much of them as they could. They weren't looking for necessarily um, these opportunities to tell moralistic stories. Um, their humanity seeps in. They probably have kids who like these products too while they're writing these shows. And so, you know, they, there's a measure of responsibility to at least make it more than pulp. Indeed. And it, we could talk about where exactly that balance falls, but I've been doing a bit of rewatching on uh, obviously the real Ghostbusters, the original Ninja Turtles, He-Man. I've, I've kind of amassed a good collection of 80s cartoon DVDs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm sure you do too. I'm not telling anything you don't know. But <laughs> what I keep getting in my head, I, looking at these names, people I recognize that wrote it, I see people who although they had a deadline and they had, you know, obligations they had to make in terms of storytelling, they were not content to churn out crap. Right. There was a pride in this. They, they were willing to work within the limitations of the format and probably the time they had available. They always seemed to try to put something new out there, put something of value in there, even in the filler episodes, which there were many, believe me. Oh, yeah. But... There was always the intent that somebody said, hey, no, this would be kind of fun. I could do this. And, you know, maybe two parents out of a thousand will get it. But th this is going to be a joke. I should put this in there. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Because they're going to be the, the, the parents like myself who watched along with, you know, the youngsters when they mm -hmm. watched their cartoons because, you know, well, they're watching Transformers, too. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be uh, right, right there along for the ride. Uh, but yeah, it, it's definitely, um, like you said, they're, they're, they're willing to work within the, the room of the system uh, and unwilling to make as much junk. Uh, you know, they, there are obviously there are the episodes where the, the toy line was refreshed and you get 15 introductions just at, on the random third episode of the season because, you know, these people, <laughs> these people have toys coming, y'all, they have to be seen in the cartoon. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, there's this recent, there's this recent uh, chatter about returning to the long season format for television in the twenty plus you know episode season range. And first of all, that's exhausting for everyone involved, uh, viewers included. Um, most actors will tell you that that shooting twenty plus episodes a season was grueling. Lot, lots of times unfulfilling work um and where we are now we're getting these tight 10 you know 12 13 episodes in a season um strange new worlds is proving that a well done 10 episode season is a really good sweet spot i'm a fan of the 13 to 15 range just you know that way you get a little room to breathe in some space uh without having room to you know just fluff but the offset of that of course is well the reason that you want a return to those longer seasons is because they're able to do such a better job in such a fewer number of episodes that that you want more episodes like that 
Mm -hmm. But you can't have them because it's the format of that that allows those 10 episodes to be so good. You can't get more without considerable cost and, and in money and human resource, literal resource. Um, and so, yeah, maybe keeping it trim and fit in this, you know, keeping these riders to some constraint is a good thing. The writers especially seem to be, at least on paper, advocating for the longer seasons, if only because writing more episodes gives them more income. And that's, I don't think that's fair. That. Yeah. yeah, that's very <laughs> fair. And I'm sure there's a trickle-down effect to the actors and, and the, the makeup personnel and the electricians and all the other you know, creative people on the set that I, I, you want more work because you know, your industry is not that stable. I, I get it. Especially we, with COVID times. Yeah. Broadly, we all just want a good show. Mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. Nobody's going to disagree with that, right? I mean, it's, it's the internet, so somebody is. But realistically. Well, and that's, you know, thinking about it, there's, there aren't, you can, you can look at a modern, you know, modern run of a show uh, with X number of seasons, and you, it's easier to group that season together and say that season was good or mediocre or et cetera. Um, and name the standouts in something like season five, six or seven of, of TNG, for example, which are generally regarded as as the they were just mean they're chugging down there. They're on a V8 down the interstate, 75 miles an hour. And it, the engine's doing no work at all. Right. They're humming down the street. And, um, and you know, season five has got uh, shoot six, eight standout episodes that, that you know could be any any in anyone's top 10 list um season six the same but there's still 19 15 other episodes where you're like oh right yeah no that one <laughs> you know and but with every episode so far of, of something like you know strange new worlds with this 10 up i oh no that one <laughs> right it's it's a lot easier to uh, and it may just be an effect of getting old, but it's a lot easier to feel that visceral connection to that particular story when there's a lot less of those stories, right? But, you know, I would, I will say this, I would suffer through 26 season, uh, 26 episode seasons if it meant that more people uh, had food on their table. <laughs> well, don't I'll forget take that offset. In the year 2022, we have this absolutely flawless method of determining when the best season of a TV show is. And that is, that, that is the season that causes Netflix to cancel it. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, no, yeah. that used to be Fox's job. Netflix is picking up a lot of mm -hmm. slack there. Um, Netflix would, would do the Firefly, you know, you get Firefly uh, or Arrested, Arrested Developed, right? Where, you know, a show literally takes home all the awards. Hey, guess what, guys? You're canceled. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, like, that was the most, that was the most facepalming, gobsmacking news. Trish and I, we loved that show, Arrested Development. We watched that show, uh, you know, on purpose. And uh, we were like, yeah, all these awards, it's going to, what? It got canceled? It made no sense. Um, but, you know, I digress. Uh, because, yeah, that's what Netflix does now, I hear. And, and that, you know, sci-fi, they used to do the same thing. Get a, get a good show going. Um, I don't know what their metrics are, but, you know, we'll make a, a, an eighth Sharknado instead of another season of a show that actually should have like Dark Chatter or I'm sorry, uh, Dark Matter. Sure. Sci-fi is I have criticized sci-fi so much over the years for just having 
absolutely no concept of what they really want to be or what they need to offer. But, and this isn't a defense of them. They just fell into the same trap as all other cable TV. They just did it maybe two or three years sooner. Yeah. And that is that cable TV started out with this concept that you could have a channel specific to your interests and you could grab that audience and hold them by the butt and that you would just make money on that because they would gravitate to you in order to have their interests fed. And and especially after like the writer's strike of the early 2000s, there was this idea that, yeah, but if we get a really popular show, we should make that, that should be our main thing. And we should have these really, really broad topics. That's why every show suddenly had a fucking cake show and they had a, a Pawn Star show and they had a travel show and a, a you know, re, redecorate Makeup my house show, show and all of that. Yeah. And yeah. it's like the, every single one had a show with the exact same format. So it was not distinguishable from regular broadcast TV. You know, uh, just because it's called Stan Lee's Who Wants to Be a Superhero doesn't mean it's going to be a winner. Right. You know, <laughs> but that's uh, that had to fit two formats or two two it had to it had to try and slot itself into two niches right mm-hmm. and it's just like the uh, quantum light experiment right you can't be a wave and a particle at the same time even though you're both right um and so trying to trying to fit that content through those two slits in the paper you get one or the other you can't have them both at the same time and so just because it's a sci-fi theme reality based or reality show doesn't mean it's going to capture that audience because you've lost the pancake, right? Your Venn, your Venn diagram starts to separate. And you, just because you're a sci-fi person doesn't mean you're going to want to watch a reality TV show where people jump over buildings and try to, you know, be a superhero, mm-hmm. right? So there's no overlap there for me. No. <laughs> um, and, and then I'm mad because you've wasted X number of dollars, time, money, and resources on content that I don't like but you want you want to make because that's what will get made but then i'm no longer your audience who's watching Mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's just kind of a wow what a cascade failure yeah and and that was just again to go back to sci-fi that was kind of where they fell is that they they had some great success in doing stuff that their audience didn't give a shit about exactly exactly they didn't suddenly didn't realize why that was a problem, and every other cable TV channel eventually did the exact same thing. So oh, right. yeah. I'm not singling them out per se. They just became a really good example. Well, and they're all they're all diluted to a point now. You know, TLC doesn't mean the Learning Channel anymore. Discovery doesn't mean the Discovery Channel okay. anymore. Uh, AMC, TCM, they're all just abbreviations, and that what they were is not what they are. And even the niche content is gone. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't go to the, even the history channel is compromised, <laughs> you know, they, the they got has been long compromised, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but it, they went off the literal rails and I, you know, I guess they're making money. I don't know. Um, if I knew the answer to that, I guess I'd be making that money too. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. And and it's weird, though, because no one is, you know, to bring it back to the beginning of the, the conversation, no one is forming communities around these shows or these ideas. Um, and I think it says something that there are very, unless I'm just not tapped into the right, to the right hoses, 
there are very few modern franchises that have, other than let's say maybe like the MCU, that have garnered the same level of fervor that franchises like Star Wars, Star Trek, um, and you know even to some degree uh, just for uh, their longevity, Stargate have garnered um, in recent memory. You know, uh, and there's a lot of overlap in those three to four things I just named, but you know, something. I just can't think of anything that I've that I've been made known uh, that has captured, a, you know, just such a large following in the last maybe five or six years. It's been tough. And part of it does come down to just the fact that there are, some of the outlets have gotten so big that we've stopped looking at the smaller outlets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I walk around at a convention and I see people pushing independent novels and comics and sometimes movies and, and YouTube shows that are very, very clever. And I love the concepts and I'm eager to get into it, but I, I wonder at their prospects of getting the audience they deserve and they truly deserve a good audience. I try to use this show to boost up as many of them as I can. Exactly. But I mean, we need communities for these things, not just people buying one-off comics. Right. And that's, that is the, you know, that is, I guess, the the other edge of the sword when it comes to the democratization of content creation, that is a fun thing to try to say, um, is that a lot of very talented people have access to the tools to express that talent, but the deluge of so much content means that they will either be swept away or missed by the people who could give them the opportunity they should have mm -hmm. um and then you know but again we'll get the 10th sharknado movie instead um <laughs> well and you know that's hey on the other side people at least people are getting paid they're having a job um hopefully you know they're having a good time making that kind of stuff but they're you know it doesn't discount for the folks who who uh have maybe something more interesting to say yeah. who don't and get the chance it it's true and i'm thinking back to a conversation i had with uh that larissa and cj julianis on, on another episode where they had made a, a an independent film and I, I strongly recommend it great great film but the issue that i came up to was back in the early 2000s i the thing was without streaming people who were into that sort of thing would print up a batch of dvds and they would send them out to anybody they could right it was it was a bit of money but it wasn't so much that people who really wanted to get something out couldn't put that money together it was somewhat cost effective and we pat ourselves on the back because streaming replaced that and that this is better and i'm like is it yeah because think about the platform you're on mm -hmm. when it you know oh I mean, not to get too many new ideas, but think about the platform you're on that, or the platforms that are available to you uh, in Moss when it comes to releasing your independent work. You put it on YouTube. Okay, you're at the whim of the algorithm. Good luck. Mm -hmm. Same on, I mean, to a lesser extent, I'm sure, but the same principle in effect on Venmo. Mm -hmm. Is it Vimeo? The video uh, one. Vimeo. Vimeo is Venmo's the, video. the money, Vimeo's the video. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Vimeo is where <laughs> uh, there is a, and it's still up there. 
it's called the coco cast uh and it was um we started it in 2010 from my friend arlton and i opened conway's first co-working space back in 2010 we called it conway co-work and the coco cast was him and i sampling a brew a beer uh and then drinking that beer and talking about technology until we couldn't coherently talk about technology anymore or the beer was gone whichever came first and uh, there's like 12 episodes of that still up on uh, vimeo because we did it as a video the experiment was using the iphone 4s to shoot it in hd and see how how that worked um that little dude got very very hot um but yeah uh the platform itself is already overwhelmed and you're at the whim of the algorithm and you and i both know that it's hard to get traction for special interests or no you know quote unquote open interest podcasts like ourselves where you know it's it itself it is not a niche into itself we're just talking to people helping wanting to, to foster a community right um so twitter it's hard to get traction there it's hard to how do you promote something on a place where everyone else already is right and that's going to limit that distribution which sparked the idea i just had a moment ago that is there an opportunity or is there a platform out there that is something we can point to for independent only films and we just create a, a space that is already filtered for these people you know, I don't know if something exists like indie film Netflix or something, but I think there's maybe an idea in there, huh? I would be shocked if that didn't exist somehow, I somewhere. Too. I would too. I, I don't want to be the guy who's like, things were better back in my day and, you know, get the hell off my lawn. <laughs> I, I'm not trying to do that. Gosh, but, no. But I'm, I think I can step out on a limb a little bit and say that there's a value in giving a small time creator the ability to say, I'm going to give you my movie on a silver platter for under $10. Yeah. yeah. And, and granted, people might not want me physically mailing them a DVD, but I can do that for well under $10 and still put a little bit of money in my pocket. Yeah. Um, and, and for for both folks involved, uh, and this is something, this is something I very recently came to terms with uh, because, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it can't it doesn't have to be yes or no it can be yes and no right um something like that a physical representation of your metaphysical creation mm -hmm. in that context i think is important to both the artist and the the patron mm -hmm. um because yeah like you said if you could if you can put something physical into the hands of someone for 10 bucks and it matters to both of you mm -hmm. then that's that's special for the sake of having done it right yeah um like there are i'm not i don't have to buy every movie i already have over again on 4k ultra 8k next ultra whatever format it is but i can collect the ones that are important to me like superman the movie like the marvel cinematic universe these films in this physical format that I have a visceral connection to for the emotion, for the reasons and, and whatever, having a tangibility there, like the Star Trek series, as it's about to come out, the first six, you know, original cast member movies are coming out on super dupe 4k release soon. Having that is, is 
worth it to me, right? If I support a, like, you know, I've supported the, the Voyager documentary, getting a physical version of that is going to be important because of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, yeah, no, you're, you're not wrong in that idea at all. I don't, I, I definitely, uh, I think folks who are, who are looking for that are going to want that kind of concierge, mm-hmm. uh, you know, service at the end for sure. Yeah. And, and I'm not saying this is a grand idea or that I have all the details worked out. I just saying as a content creator, as somebody who's watched the evolution of media and how it's affected independent creators, I see a few obstacles in our world today that don't need to be there. Yep. That, that, yep. that smart people should be able to have a better answer for that they haven't said yet. And, you know, I was thinking too, because uh, it wasn't me, but I do remember the, the first person I knew that had a CD burner, mm-hmm. right? And how that changed people, independent music artists were the first, I think, to kind of benefit from that. You know, they were able to, to take their uh, Tascam four track <laughs> uh, mixed down cassette and put it onto uh, DVD and so, or not DVD, but CD. And, and then, you know, and that just progressed from there as we were able to uh, democratize and consumerize, you know, quality mm-hmm. video cameras over um, just the VHS. And it, this evolution of content creation, content distribution and community building um, for myself, at least, has been it's been rewarding to be a part of uh, and it's been rewarding to watch it grow and change over these many decades now that make up my life. Indeed. And we could have a whole conversation on on the poor missteps that have happened along the way and, and you know, what we saw, what we missed. What, I mean, that's you and I have kind of had hints about that we should just have a, an old man yells at cloud type chat about the Internet in general. <laughs> Back in my day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've been thinking recently, uh, um, you know, as as someone who. The you know meme distribution, I think is one of the is one of the more fascinating um, uh, growth points in the internet. In that you know there is still a there the first memes that I shared or were shared still had an element of sneaker net to them. Right, mm-hmm. you had to be over at somebody's house and remember. Oh man. Okay. Wait. So somebody sent me an email the other day. Okay. Hold on. Where's your computer? Okay. Oh, all right. No, wait, you gotta wait. You gotta boot it up. You gotta, cause nobody kept the computer on all the time. You gotta wait. You gotta boot it up. Uh, do you have the internet? Uh, okay. Well, do you dial in or is it okay? And so then you get connected and then, okay. Now, um, and you didn't have Google. So you went to whatever, you know, maybe Yahoo at the time you're like, you know, okay. It's like South park cartoon or something like that. I don't know what it's called. Right. You know, and it's the original, um christmas card animation thing that that trey and matt made uh you know that was viral back in the day and and it was literally on vhs and it made its way around hollywood and that's that's where that started that's one of the first memes that i knew to share with folks and it was freaking hilarious you have troop uh troops uh the star wars uh cops uh parody um that's out there that video is hilarious um and that's one of the earliest memes. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, the the meme is known by a fat Star Wars kid. Um, 
uh, that's probably not one of the best ones to reminisce about. Uh, but it was, you know, at the time, that's just one of those things you didn't, we didn't text memes to each other. We didn't have a way to share them on Twitter. Um, but that nascent memeology was still there. And it was this, it was like, I did this bridge the other day. It's just this technological gap bridge where, you know, you, you get it to work and then technology comes along where sharing memes is like literally just reaction gifts to something people said on Twitter now. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the other day I, I have a, a computer I'm using inside and an external monitor to connect it. Uh, it's an iMac with an external monitor, right? The, the monitor only has display port, you know, standard display port and some HDMI. Well, the old iMac does only has, you know, Thunderbolt display port out. I'm like, how am I going to connect these two? Well, back in like 2008 or nine, I bought a contraption to connect from uh, mini display port, USB, optical audio, anyway, to make a, a, an HDMI out port for my old laptop. And I still had that and an HDMI cable. And so I was able to connect this, you know, monitor I bought in 2022 to this computer that I bought in 2012 using a cable that I bought in 2009. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, that's, I think the, the, that conversation like that you and I could have about how just watching these, these networks form and then kind of absorb into, um, you know, obscurity because you don't go over to someone's house and say, Oh, Hey, wait, let me, let me look at your computer and show you this show you this reaction gif i found yeah and that's the social the, the 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 way it impacts culture and people that i feel like maybe the the train has left the station a little too fast on that like mm -hmm. we're, we're not get some we're, we're losing some things that were valuable in the not too recent the not too distant past and that you know we shouldn't leave that behind just yet like i said i when when the cleverness of making a meme devolves into just a reaction gift and you know people have some people have been meme artists and there are some very talented people out there cranking those out yeah oh yeah and it's i mean i think that's there there that's the thing is like when you see you know the chef's kiss meme uh it's just you're like wow i i wish i was that because a good one is just so it like i said it is an art um and then you got something like Dolly coming along, uh, making everybody everybody a memer. <laughs> like the first thing I, I understood to be a meme, and I think that was about the time the word, well, it was just before the word came out, was uh, Mr. T versus everything. <laughs> yes. And, and for the, the young ones in the room here, there, there was a whole website or many websites, but the idea was that you would have this comic book-like fight between Mr. T and the other person of your choice, whether it be, you know, a Sesame Street character or a pro football player, or but you you team Mr. T up. And the only rule was at the end of the story, Mr. T won. Oh, of course. Yes. Always. And yeah. this wasn't just a meme like you think of it today where it was a graphic with some text on it. These were literal comic books people had made out of various drawings and graphics and there would be you could print these out and read them somewhere so elaborate <laughs> and all about the joke that you wanted to see mr t win in a fight against something i didn't matter but chuck norris I, yeah that <laughs> that was the case of how 
don't let this creativity go away. Yeah, yeah. And and that's so and that is that is such a fun point though to it doesn't matter the venue through which people unlock creativity, right? Um I am no real artist in in any way that I would qualify, but I've managed to hack through some things. But one of the things that that I like to do is what I it's like digital composition art, right? Um, and mostly it's because I make the backgrounds that we use on the internet, uh, YouTube D and D game we play. So everyone who's on Zoom, they have their background. That's a digital art composition that I've made of of talking to them. Okay, what's your character about? Uh, where do they come from? What part of the world are they in? These kinds of things, and then I'll go image searching on the internet and find you know this background or you know this skyline is what that represents and this is over here and i'll just pick these elements shift and move perspective blend it together and compose a new piece of work out of these elements these obtainiums um to create you know some sense of of uh, place for the character in this game <laughs> And uh, it's a lot of fun, but I wouldn't call it art. But, you know, I mean, it's not not art. People have been doing collage art forever. Well, I'm going to go ahead and put the brakes on this, because if you get me to try to define art, that's a conversation that will make some people cheer and some people weep. So let's, let's not go there. <laughs> art is literally up to the person who's looking at it. Yeah. That's all there really is to say about art. So, Dan, I'm going to let you go. Yeah. Where can people find your adventures on the internet? Wow. So there's a couple of places to check out. Uh, the easiest place to start, of course, is on Twitter at D-A-N-D-E-C-K-R. Um, that is uh, the main, the main, as they say. Uh, but you can also hit up uh, at Emberfell, E-M-B-E-R-F-E-L-L-D-N-D on Twitter. And that's where you can find the YouTube uh, D&D game as an actual role play that we're doing we are on episode 160 or something we've literally we've been playing for like every week for like a year and a half almost so um not not uh, an insignificant amount of time when it comes to D D party um and those are the oh and the podcast that i do uh hit up a digress cast on um twitter and that is also uh you can check out um anchor.fm slash digress cast for the whole show and I'm going to remind everybody that you have been on the show before. So when I link all of that information in the show notes on my website, aaronbossig.com, I will also link the previous episodes you've been on and the episodes of your show that I've been on so people can get the proper context for this conversation if that's something they want to see. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we are a multiverse of madness to ourselves. Dan, thanks so much for being here, buddy. I really had a good time. Aaron, it's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. I would like to thank Dan for being my guest today, and I would like to thank you for listening. I've spoken before about my love for the Sci-Fi Coffee Company and the fact that I enjoy their product, but also that it's sci-fi themed, and that's great. But what I love about this company most is that they actually want to support sci-fi creatives, and they want to make it easier for people who want to get into writing sci-fi to do so. They're holding a contest called 
the Coffee Lifts Creatives Writing Prompt Contest through the end of July 2022. And here's the deal. You go to their website, you come up with a piece of flash fiction, 2,000 words or less, about one of these two particular coffee blends, the Morning Liftoff and the Intergalactic Romance. Write the backstory for this coffee. You can try the coffee, I encourage you to do so, or you can just talk about coffee in general and make a sci-fi themed story for it. Enter it in and you have the chance to win a cash prize. It's very difficult to get any money writing science fiction. Trust me, I know. A lot of my friends know. A lot of your friends know. This is a great chance to get involved with legitimate enterprise and flex those creative muscles. Visit sci-fi-coffee.com to get started. If you'd like to order some coffee, use the coupon code HUNGRY to get 10% off your order. Let's swing back to the conversation Dan and I had in this episode. Dan gave Netflix a little bit of jazz, and I think we can all agree that when it comes to prematurely canceling shows, they certainly deserve it. But I'm going to open up the Good Pods app and try to see where the other conversation is. I type Netflix into Good Pods, and I find a podcast called Every Horror Movie on Netflix. It's been running for over 130 episodes, and it's about a bunch of horror fans who like to critique the individual types of horror movies on Netflix. This is great, because when you have a catalog like Netflix, which is varied, and you have some big studio movies as well as some indie flicks, you need some help going through that and seeing separating the wheat from the chaff. Dan and I discussed how important it is for a creator to have that kind of an outlet. This podcast is great, and I'm guessing they do a great job. I want to reach out to them and see how they're doing. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.